0: Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I love constructivist learning theory. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I love choice theory. Professional development requires ongoing reflection
1: and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer.
0: Today, we are drinking Morning Island Blends from Transport Brewery. Well, it's dark.
1: I can already smell the coconut. I wish this had pour instructions, because I suspect this was supposed to be poured hard.
0: That is not my default.
1: Uh, And I didn't do it now either. As I was pouring, I was like, oh, this probably would have been better if I poured it hard. Okay. It's dark, but doesn't appear thick. It reminds me of 1554.
0: And the head disappeared immediately.
1: Yeah. So that's exciting because I like that characteristic. All right. What are we doing today, bro? We look at a major expansion of the growth mindset research with K-12 students. We see how relatively small interventions can have a meaningful impact for students' success in their current coursework and their willingness to accept future challenges. Later we look at how different forms of feedback might help students achieve greater growth in a math classroom. And then in the peer review, we look at a response from author Garcia Alvarez and her comments on our discussion of metacompetencies. Let's get started. These papers are big, so I'm really excited for this month because last month we were really focusing on like particular practitioners and researchers and, and work that hadn't even been published yet, but this month we are reading two big time papers from two big time journals.
0: True story. This first one was so big I did not read all of it, which is unusual for me. <laughs> uh, it's kind of divided itself into two, two, uh, two sections like the we did a thing and here's what it means section followed by the equally long, so here's what we really did. (laughs) Which is just just detail after detail after detail, which I honestly didn't need.
1: Which actually makes sense because This paper was one that all of you may have heard of before because it kind of made a big splash when it came out. This is A National Experiment Reveals Where a Growth Mindset Improves Achievement. There is a litany of authors on this, so I'm not going to read them all to you, but it includes the likes of uh, the first author is Jaeger, but it also has uh, Dr. Duckworth and Dr. Dweck among many, many other authors on this. And this is basically the research response to the original criticisms of growth mindset studies. And here were the limitations, here were the things you did Consider considers this and fine, we're going to get a hundred people to work together to do the most robust and deep research ever come at us.
0: Yeah, it was uh, super satisfying to see, you know, an N of 6,000 and uh, lots, lots of lots of like deep, robust. They actually hired a research statistic firm to do this in a way uh, using like state of the art stats, AIs and all kinds of craziness. So like they they pushed back as hard as you can from a research statistics perspective. Yeah, they gave these kids some fixed mindset lessons. and there were two lessons. I think they were separated. I think they mentioned something about 20 days, but there were, whatever there was some time between them. and they were 20 minute lessons and they were uh, they were focusing on effort. The, the, the message that the brain is like a muscle and that the more you work it, the, the better it gets and the more thinking you can do. So it was really stressing the value of effort, both giving lessons on effort and telling narratives about effort being valuable. That's what it was.
1: And so what was important for the way they approached this work this time was they really laid out ahead of time, all of the parameters of what this research was going to be looking for and especially what kinds of effects they were hoping to find if growth mindset research is useful and matters to practitioners. And so they define things like what is a big effect size? These are relatively small interventions, right? These are not, this is not a long term, like this isn't a new course. This isn't a revolutionary restructuring of the school. These are relatively limited limited lessons to help students understand the malleability of their intellectual abilities. And so they laid out initially, if this is relatively small, what does it look like for the effect size to be meaningful? Not just statistically significant, but meaningful. They, they defined statistically what a big effect size is, but they also gave for, um, for context some other typical effect sizes, which I thought was really interesting. If these lessons were, were
0: applied globally the effect would reduce 5.3% of students from being off track for graduation during the course of their high school career. So 5.3% more
1: students graduating on time across the United States. Yeah, so that's, that, that's 5% of millions of students. Yeah, so two 20-minute lessons... 5% higher graduation rates. Yep, and so they, they defined what their what their baseline, they defined, if you will, their baseline uh, effect size that would be meaningful to be two tenths of a standard deviation. And they defined that as large because they compared it to other things like uh, the typical amount of improvement that you see for a year of instruction for ninth graders, just based on the measurements of standardized tests.
0: The effect of having a experienced good teacher over an average teacher in a classroom.
1: Uh, and that's even, that's even on the high end of what you typically see for the distributions of uh, like actual applied and implemented real world effect sizes for randomized trials in like out in the world as opposed to in uh, lab controlled research settings. So they defined big and they said this is big because this is what it's what is on the high end of most other things that are comparable in these questions.
0: There was another study that also purported having a really great uh, effects and those interventions improved performance by 0.03 standard deviations. So if if other papers are celebrating improvements of 0.03 standard deviations, things that are approaching 0.2 are going to be uh, literally... uh, What's that?
1: An order of magnitude an order
0: of magnitude more significant
1: yeah so they, so they defined big and they and they contextualized that which I thought was useful because they did all of that ahead of time before yeah. they had any other data in I also didn't know that it, in an entire year I would only expect to see two standard deviations of improvement in a class of ninth graders which I don't I don't even know if I think that's big or small I just didn't know it
0: right uh, first they they um... They assessed whether or not the treatments actually affected the mindsets of students. Before we even look at achievement, did did these two lessons actually matter? And they concluded with a p-value of less than 0.001 that, yes, it did. The students with the growth, with the growth mindset lessons uh, had a greater growth mindset attitudes than those that did not get the lessons. So, one, the lessons worked. Another, I mean, so much of this paper was done well. I think it would be uh, wrong of us not to uh, revisit the title. A national experiment reveals where a growth mindset improves achievement. So, Because growth mindset doesn't work as effectively in all situations. There are some situations where you have a greater return and some situations where you, you have a lesser return. And those are the details that we're interested in. Where's there less return on growth mindset instruction?
1: So one of the things that they said was important that has been happening since the original growth mindset material started to become um, widespread was trying to use growth mindset interventions that promote growth mindset and challenge seeking behaviors with students from lower ses backgrounds to try and improve their achievements um they quadrated that so so let's talk about those things they were looking at
0: mindset in schools that had lots of resources, wealth of instruction, maybe wealth of financial resources, facilities and opportunities for students. High
1: access to high quality curriculum, access to experienced and well-trained teachers. Does that return become negligible or are there better places to spend our dollars because the other support systems can, uh, can provide some of the same supports or some overlapping supports versus schools who have uh, fewer formal resources where a growth mindset intervention has a chance to Um, produce a higher level of return, a higher level of improvement in those scenarios. A second uh, set of factors they looked at
0: were the informal resources, which I interpreted to be as sort of uh, school body culture resources. What are the returns for student achievement regarding growth mindset lessons in a school where students are predisposed to accept challenges and encourage each other to be challenged contrasted to cultures, school cultures where students maybe avoid challenge or disincentivize each other from engaging in challenge.
1: I think that's the one that was most interesting to me as a practitioner. Cause I think that's the thing that matters to me as I'm thinking about what I can do in my classroom and what mm-hmm. I can help others do in their classrooms is this is one intervention. This is, this is some group of materials that they present to students. But if I'm imagining trying to deploy growth mindset materials or curricula or training broadly, one of the first things that I'm going to bring up is how can we make this responsive to the particular environments where people are trying to put this? And they were specifically looking at how that, how that matters. So if I'm trying to implement uh, some sort of training for my students that promotes, hey, seek challenge, hey, ask for help, but I am ignoring or ignorant of this broader culture that costs
0: social capital.
1: It costs them face, uh, if I try and implement one of these, one of these interventions, one of these trainings in a place where the students are snickering in the back and the students are calling the other, uh, some of them who are inclined to accept challenge if they're if they're making fun of them behind their backs, then my intervention is not going to be all that useful. And so I really appreciated their looking at these informal resources and the impact of the culture on these interventions because ultimately, and that's not what the paper addressed, but what I want to think about is how can I tailor an intervention to be most likely to be conducive or impactful for the culture where it is being implemented. All
0: right, well, guess what? If your school has a lot of resources and many avenues of supports for students, there's not that big a significant gain from growth mindset in that school. There, Most of them are gonna succeed anyway, and if they are showing problems in one area, there are responses available in the school to help support them. So there's not a big gain. Uh, They measured two things, GPA, but also something that I thought was very interesting, uh, subsequent enrollment in advanced math and science courses. And I found, they said in this paper, that enrollment in, in science and math courses is one of the higher corollary indicators of lifetime wellness, which makes me feel like my job just got a whole lot more important than I ever thought it was. So that was affirming
1: and i thought what was useful for that one was especially if you're in schools that have a lot of formal resources that you know there's a lot of competition over well, i have a 4.7 GPA. Well, I have a 4.68 GPA, and so that uh, that clustering at the high ends of some of the GPA measures might make it harder to measure how those students are continuing to seek additional challenge. So using that enrollment in further and higher level and more challenging and more complex courses, I thought was a really nice way to find that effect if it existed. Like yeah. that's where I would expect it to happen. So that was and so to see it not there makes me feel pretty confident that yeah, there's not a lot of return on that particular investment.
0: Right however in schools with fewer resources we did see significant impacts in in the students gpa and pursuing more advanced classes after growth mindset interventions so uh two 20 minute lessons on how the brain is like a muscle
1: uh can have significant impacts in those areas which is a pretty straightforward should if i'm in a school that does not have the greatest portion of resources um, for supporting students as they seek challenge, then a fairly limited intervention, just talk to them about growth mindset for a little while can have a pretty substantial impact. If I can have that kind of impact for every lesson every day, I would be, I'd be really comfortable with how I'm doing as a teacher. Uh, And one thing further, even if you're in an environment that has,
0: even if you're in a school with robust, formal resources there was a subgrouping effect that i thought was worth reporting that if you have low achieving students in your school they too saw gains so though the school level intervention didn't see significant gains the individual students that were low achieving in that school did so really unless you're have a class of and I'm going to use this term here, quote, straight A students, unless everyone in your class just gets everything that is said to them the first time you say it said with sarcasm. You should be doing this.
1: So I want to reground, because I get I, I feel myself getting excited about this paper, because this, yeah. re, I, I feel remarkably confident about talking about the importance of making students aware that their academic abilities are malleable. But this doesn't change the fact that telling students who are struggling, well, just have more of a growth mindset. That's not what this paper is about. And so this is a pretty limited intervention. And then it needs to get back to productive struggle. Yeah. So like this is not an all day, every day growth mindset, just struggle more, just struggle more. This is still in a place where there are curricular supports, where there's good instruction, Uh, where this is all of the other things need to be there. This is a pretty limited intervention to just help students understand, hey, you can get better at this. Now here's how, now here's the, this, here's the interesting information, here's the authentic context. And so uh, I just want to put on tape, I want to caution. This is a pretty limited intervention. So we still have to be careful about slipping into that deficit mindset, especially as you suggest in schools where there are many successful students. And so the struggling students, uh, we don't want to get into that trap of just saying, well, struggle more, just struggle more. We want to make sure that we're giving them good quality opportunities for productive struggle. We want to put the supports in place, the scaffolding in place to help them get better because this was just this was just a small piece of the entire puzzle as far as instruction goes
0: i am assuming that teachers will facilitate that struggle and speaking about facilitating the stru- the struggle to some extent well to a large extent as a practicing teacher i don't actually have a lot of power in changing the resources available in my school in terms of capital and facilities and opportunities though i have some you know For my agency in my classroom, I can't just write a a million-dollar check and build another wing to the building. So, and of course, those who know how construction works know that I don't know what things cost. So, I can't do it. I don't have a specialty for that. So, the other component I think is a little more interesting from an actionable perspective. And I know you were super excited about that earlier, so I want you to take that now, Mr. Ralph.
1: So the other, the other lens through which they were looking at this problem was the availability of informal resources, which was the school culture, the student responses, the student supports for each other's pursuit of additional challenges. And they found that that really did matter. That really did matter for the efficacy of these implementations. Unlike the check and the tax money and how
0: your school is funded, I can build a culture in my classroom. I spend a lot of time at the beginning of the school year doing non-assessed work with my kids and discussions, specifically for what I call culture building so that I can shape what my classroom feels like and what my interaction expectations will be for my students. I spend a lot of groundwork doing that. We spend at least two weeks, sometimes three weeks, not doing science in my classroom so that I can build a culture where we promote and celebrate each other's struggle. And that makes me feel good that this matters.
1: And I think what's important to note here is I think this is actually a clarification of a really common misconception in our country about the role of growth mindset education versus just providing access and building a culture of productive struggle, which I think this study lays out to be different. So if I spend all day long singing a song about have a growth mindset, have a growth mindset, but I don't incentivize or build a culture of or provide opportunities for productive struggle then I can be undermining my own efforts. Yes, I can be limiting the impact of all of those songs that I'm singing about growth mindset. And so if I were to walk into a colleague's classroom and I were to watch their work and I see them saying, you made this mistake, we can get better together. Talk to your neighbors, we can do this. And then I go to the next group and I say, hey, you really nailed this. Here's what's next for you. Here's what the next issue that professionals worry about. Why don't you look into that? You can share it with us later. And I go to the next group. I might be tempted to see that as they're just doing growth mindset stuff too. Why do they get a different thing than I do? It must be out of my control. When really this study lays out pretty clearly, those are different things. A pretty limited intervention about growth mindset itself is not as important for a practitioner to consider as building a consistent day-to-day culture around productive struggle and collaboration as we work through those 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 inevitable challenges. And so I as you say I can do that and that is going to magnify the effect of what little time I might spend actually talking about growth mindset by name. Yeah.
0: So one of the things that I caught that is part of my sort of uh, new important focus for, my, for me as a practitioner in the school year was this phrase. Indeed, new interventions in the future should address the interpretation of other challenges that adolescents experience, including social and interpersonal difficulties to affect outcomes such as depression that thus far have proven difficult to address. What I like about this is that as student mental health becomes an increasingly important component of my professional considerations, that this idea that growth requires struggle and that you need to focus on productive struggle and that you can employ effort to overcome challenges is not something that is confined to the academic space, but also is leverageable amongst the experience of being a human and lots of kinds of human suffering and experience. So like for this to be sort of like the concluding remarks at the end of this just epic study uh, gave me a sense of peace and further affirmation that uh, student mental health is important. And that struggling together through student mental health issues and supporting the students as individuals holistically, both academically and personally, is a worthy goal. So, I just felt really nice seeing that, like right at the end, like, and this is why this really matters, bye.
1: Make better mistakes. So our second segment, we read a paper that actually was brought to my attention by uh, somebody in my broader professional network, and she posted this paper and said, "Hey, I need to be reading this because I want to see how it affects my grading practices." And I was like, "Wow, that's a that's an interesting title. We'll read it too." So I'm really excited. Thanks, Lee, for pointing this out. We're gonna, we're gonna we took a look at it as well. So we're reading, investigating how errors should be flagged and worked examples structured when providing feedback to novice learners of mathematics. Uh, That's by Manson and Ayers, and that was published in Educational Psychology.
0: So when I first started this paper, I was in a bit of a position to be sort of uh, initially slightly oppositional or resistant to some of the things that they were saying because my background is in science in science practice you have a problem that you don't know how to solve and you are trying a bunch of things to try to figure out how to do that. And so it's all problem solving. Actual science is all problem solving. And so um, giving students a problem to solve and then having them test things and fail is, uh, is richly the science experience. And they started off in this paper saying, Giving students examples of how to work problems is more effective for them learning how to solve math problems than having them solve math problems. And I was taken aback, but this apparently is a standard that has sort of been in place since uh, uh, 1985, published in 1985, and it's
1: been robust and it's held up and uh, it keeps going. I started out with the opposite, just seeing, seeing the title, and I have tremendous respect for Lee, and so I was like, this is going to be great, and she, I love lots of things she says, so I can't wait to read this thing. Well, it wasn't about feedback, it was just um, orienting me to the language and practice of teaching math,
0: yeah. is that, we, sh- you know, show show them examples of how to work problems
1: is better than making them figure out how to work problems. Well, and see... So I started out really enthusiastic and I became deeply oppositional. Oh, I became better. (laughs) Uh, Which is actually why I slugged my point for improvement (laughs) is I didn't like this paper for lots of reasons. And so I had to like put in print, don't just hate everything. Because there are things that are worth talking about and you kind of fell down that rabbit hole a little bit last time you had a paper you didn't like. Mm-hmm. So keep your head on your shoulders was what this was about. Because I disagree with even that sentence uh, is a better way to learn math. Well, better is a really complicated work. Uh, because better is assuming some things about how it should happen and how we should measure it and what practice is. And as you mentioned, science, uh, science is a, is a specific discipline with lots of unique things that are unique to the practice of science. Right. And the same is true about mathematics. The same is true about, about literature and about social studies. And, uh, I just flatly disagree that mathematics is any different as far as considering the complexity of practice. Mathematics is again about solving problems. It's about finding novel connections and, uh, patterns that may not have been initially apparent. And so uh, when we talk about better, I think that there's a really important conversation to be had related to uh, Dr. Zhao's paper that we reference pretty regularly on this show about uh, the side effects of particular educational choices. Yeah. Uh, so providing work examples is direct instruction. Yes. And they give that definition very early in the day, like this, is, we are talking about direct instruction. And so we're making some assumptions that math is just generating answers. And in the examples of problems that they provide, uh, it, it's always highly sterile, decontextualized, solve for X kinds of yeah. questions. and that's, that's, that's not the totality or even the majority of mathematics as I understand it. Fair. So when we're looking at what this is good for, and I don't I think work problems have, have a role. and so I, there are things to think about in this paper. But when we say about is better for learning math, it's better I, for solving linear equations for x. Right. At least solving the same kinds of linear equations that we saw previously, again, not long after. They were trying to teach some students how to solve for X in linear
0: equations. Mm -hmm. These were a bunch of Australian middle school students. And they did two experiments, but I'm actually fine just skipping the first one because a lot of what was in the first one was found again in the second one, so it's kind of redundant, so we'll just go to the second one. They had this design. They would directly teach them how to solve for X. They would give them a pretest about how well they solved for X. They would provide feedback from their test in a manner of different ways. And then they would give them, and they'd let them look at the feedback. And then they'd give them a post-test after the feedback. And all of this was done over the course of two days. Yeah. So direct instruction, pretest, After school, you do the feedback stuff. You grade the test and do the feedback. The next day, you give it back to them. And then you give them another post-test.
1: And one thing that I appreciated about their design was they were acknowledging, at least to some extent, there's this worked this worked example effect, which means students who don't know very much about a topic see a lot of gain in these kind of direct, uh, decontextualized measures. When you show them how to do the algorithm, you're asking them to reproduce, and that's fairly intuitive. But then they also acknowledge the expertise reversal effect, which is actually something we referenced on this show quite a while back that says that as they develop more expertise and more experience, those examples become redundant with what has become automatic information for them. And so then actually reduces their performance and makes things worse. And so what they were looking for was what's a way that we can alter our feedback so that we can account for this expertise reversal effect as students get better at the thing we're trying to train them to do. And that that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. That seems, oh okay, sure, let's see if we can do that.
0: During, they gave, they divided the kids up into four groups, giving them four different styles of feedback. In one style, they put an X where the error occurred, and then they gave them the full walkthrough of the problem, as though they were starting from the beginning, no matter where the mistake happened, and they showed them how to work the problem and the feedback. In the second, they put an X where the mistake occurred, and they just started where the mistake occurred and finished the, the problem, showing them how to finish the problem from where they left off. In the third, they put a mark where the X occurred and they only showed them how to correct that line in their computation. So everything before it and everything after was missing. And in the fourth one, they showed them how to do the entire problem, but they never marked where the students errors were. So complete work problem, partial work problem, single line
1: of the problem, And not pointing out their errors. Well, they found that students can more faithfully reproduce an algorithm when you show them how to do the algorithm. In its entirety. In its entirety. Fine. Why not? And so they only got reliable and valid measurements of repeatability. Can you do the sterile decontextualized algorithm when we have showed you how to do it and just tested you on it very recently? Can you do it again? Yes, they can. Okay, people... That I, I don't know how useful that is. I don't think that that's what math is. I don't think that's what mathematics is, but fine, they can do that. And then we have this other issue where they also looked at whether flagging student mistakes made a difference, and they failed to reject their null hypothesis, which means that they, there wasn't a substantial or what appeared to be a meaningful difference, or improvement, rather, for the students who had their mistakes flagged versus the students who did not have their mistakes flagged. I know that when I do a lot of my my marking, when I do a lot of my feedbacking, I provide very limited or no guidance for where those mistakes have happened. Because in my own experience, what I believe I've seen in the classroom is it produces greater engagement from students as they are trying to understand their mistakes than if I spoon it, feed it to them. If I just flag directly what I want them to change, they just change it. And we move on without ever without ever giving the critical thought that i want them to give to the mistakes they've made so i make the argument or the prediction rather that it's actually desirable to not give overly detailed identification of the things i want to change well and there's also a difference between teaching
0: an algorithm and teaching relationships mm-hmm. so what might be better for teaching an algorithm may be worse for teaching relationships and the flip may be true there's something wrong with your relationships. You're going to have to consider them and find what the problem is. Is different than you, you didn't. You didn't divide both sides. You should have divided both. Yeah, sides. Yeah, you should have
1: cross-multiplied. Yeah, to do that.
0: yeah. So, um, you, you say your personal classroom experience.
1: I don't. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah and mine was not systematic. I'm not trying to publish my right personal exactly, exactly 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 uh, so all I have is a prediction and so ultimately this gets back to a bigger critique of this paper you find what you measure like you find what you go looking for yeah and they presuppose pretty clearly and they they spend time discussing, the general superiority of direct instruction. And so, referencing again my critique of the use of the word better, when there are pros and cons to all sorts of instructional choices. And I think direct instruction has a place. I do direct instruction sometimes. But when they are so clearly looking specifically for direct instruction to manifest in these really narrowly focused measures, and then they fail to find other things, that exist in other parts of how we think about mathematics. Well, that's not surprising because none of your measures were designed to find anything other than just repetition of algorithms. So of course you didn't find anything else. But this is great if you're teaching your students a new procedure, a new way to handle data, a new way to do something in the lab, giving them a clear example of what that looks like. Yeah, I do that. I can think of myself doing that in times I've done that in class. I don't say go figure out how to use a hot plate. I say, here's how you use a hot plate. Yeah, And that's fine and good and appropriate.
0: What I actually took away from this, for me, was that novices need more feedback. This paper might speak to a larger problem. I'm sort of accessing this paper very differently than you are. I'm accessing it as a paper that encourages more formative assessment and feedback opportunities in the classroom. So though there are technical complications and things that were gotten, got wrong, I think the direction is valuable. I have, as time has gone on, I've become less confident in the amount of feedback and formative assessment opportunities that are occurring in students' experience. I think, I think I took for granted that it happened a lot more often than it actually happens. And I've been in an uncomfortable place because I'm beginning to realize that students have far less ungraded practice in their lives than I thought they had. And as a consequence, when I see this saying, you should give them multiple rounds of ungraded practice with feedback between those rounds. I'm like, yeah, you should do that. And so my, since I was struggling with another education perspective before I read this paper, when I picked up that thread in this paper, I felt better about it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why my reading, I think, is different than your reading. Because I was I was a little more... Um, Philosophy and narrative focused as opposed to technique and execution focused. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes. Give them frequent feedback. Make it timely. Which they lay out. They lay out some of the details of what good feedback looks like and it's great. It is. It's great. So give them good timely feedback and help them do the things you're asking them to do.
0: Feedback is good.
1: Yeah. And... Paul Ayers has been publishing peer-reviewed literature for several decades, so I look forward to him telling me all the things I did wrong. Mm. Intent Matters. Okay, so for our third segment, we are bringing back the peer review because we actually have a rather important conversation that we need to share with all of you. Uh, So a couple months ago in episode 029, Skills and Content, uh, when we had our guest host Will Dunn on, we read a paper in Creative Education. That paper was written by Maria Garcia Alvarez and was called Can Character Solve Our Problems? Character, Qualities, and
0: The Imagination
1: Age. Age. Uh, It was a position page, and we had a really complicated conversation. There were some uh, some issues I took with it. There were some other concerns that uh, the other folks had. And there were also some things that we found in common. But we always share the episodes where we discuss papers with the authors of those papers. And we heard back from uh, Maria and we had a fairly rich dialogue via email about that conversation and what she found in it and any replies she had. She had a lot. She really put a lot of time and energy into her reply. Uh, I thought, I liked hearing from her. Uh, She was
0: definitely passionate. She was well-written. She was thorough in her defense as well. Um, She made some very good articulate points about uh, some of the questions that we had and filled in some of the gaps that we had uh, made, maybe had made some false assumptions or just left blank. Uh, And she really gave us a better understanding of the process that went involved with that uh, publisher and uh, her peer review process and uh, the positions that she was taking in defense of the paper.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, that, so we really appreciate that. And so it was, a, it, was a, it was a rich and deep conversation. We can't just read you all the emails, uh, but we at least wanted to put on air for all of you that we had some additional conversation with the author and there were a couple of points that we wanted to clarify for everyone. So the first thing that came up in that episode, was especially in the early segments where we were all kind of just reacting to the paper. And uh, I know I especially was pretty clear that uh, I was emotionally unhappy in some spots. And I did not do a good job of clarifying how many places we agreed with the author. Uh, Ultimately, the position that there are
0: things greater than content that should be our priorities is actually agreed upon by everyone who was present.
1: Yeah and she, she has a focus on sustainability and so she was really clear about all the things that build to those higher priorities and they were resonant with me and I, I know I in particular didn't do a good job of making that clear on tape. We agreed in far more places than we disagreed. Item number two, uh, she clarified her experience with the peer review process, and it was a pretty good representation of what I imagine the peer pre- peer review process ought to be for a journal, which I feel like is some uh, reinforcement of the credibility of uh, the publisher and that particular journal, and of course the professionals who spend their time and energy publishing that journal. And so I think that that's a that's a that's something that we should represent to all of you. I'm glad she had an appropriate representation of the peer review process, got comments, made revisions, resubmitted. All of that is good. Yeah. But that doesn't change the fact that a couple of the critiques that I had for the paper, I feel like stand. So I don't know if that means that the peer review process needs to be different or needs to be more robust or if I have an unreasonable expectation of what peer review ought to be. Or
0: if you were on that panel, you might be the outlier reviewer that had critiques at the other yeah, didn't Yeah, I'm, ju- I'm the
1: jerk reviewer too that all the memes that all the memes are about. That may be true, and so uh, I made a few critiques about the about. The peer review process and what I perceived may have been happening or not, and she really clarified that she had a, a good, reasonable, appropriate uh, experience with peer review. And I feel like that doesn't change some of the comments that I made about, thing, uh, you know, the representation of citations uh, or some of the conventions that should or should not have been there. Uh, I don't know why they, those weren't caught in the peer review. Maybe I have an unreasonable expectation of what peer review ought to be. Uh, but she definitely had a. A quality, reasonable peer review process associated with that paper,
0: so we can put that critique to rest.
1: Yeah, we'll set it aside. There, there's a conversation about what should happen there, but it definitely happened. She definitely yeah. that all of that the journal and the editor and all the folks did their jobs there. And then the last piece, which is really the one uh, that I feel like we landed on in the segment, was the perspective of what education ought to do and ought to be in society. Um, she clearly took an economic perspective towards uh, education and its role for preparing students for their future and especially about their role in the labor force. Uh, and she definitely, she definitely stood by that position in her email and said, yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. Uh, she did say that's what
0: I'm thinking about, but she also said she's open to looking up through other narratives. And she asked for other narratives mm-hmm. uh, because she wants this, uh, that she wants this position to be persuasive. So, if if the economic narrative wasn't persuasive, what others can we look at? So, her being open to considering other philosophical defenses of education was uh, refreshing. And you know, we uh, we had those conversations as well.
1: What I really liked about that particular piece of our discussion with her, was as she really started to ramp up her argument specifically tailored to us, as opposed to what was written in her paper for a general audience, uh, was she was really emphasizing sustainability, societal sustainability yeah. moving forward and tackling those big wicked problems, the phrase that you loved. Loved it. And, uh, and that resonated with me. I know that I know that you made similar comments. Absolutely. And I felt like that was a compelling argument for me. And so um, she said, you know, the economic model is the way that she thinks about it, but but her argument was really independent of that model, it's something that I can be on board with. Agreed. And so that was that was encouraging. You know, it's important to me in our region to think about the impact of using an economic model and some of the some of the costs, some of the pay, some of the implicit of
0: the, implication.
1: Yeah, some of the limitations of yeah, that perspective yeah, yeah. here in this area. Uh, but really, when I started to understand more of her argument um, as she as she corresponded with us, her perspective was really about sustainability. And yeah, I'm sign me up. I really liked that. So uh, so thank you. Uh, thank you, Maria, for having that conversation, being willing to exchange ideas with us. It was a wonderful example of a professional dialogue. And uh, if anybody's interested, I don't know how to share that with you. But uh, I want you to know that it was a really great discussion. And um, there's, more to, there's, there's more to that paper. Uh, this is better with you. Yeah, for sure.
0: Empower each other.
1: Well, how was the beer? It's a fine beer. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but it was not made for me.
0: That's funny. There was uh, the coconut taste a little too strong for you? Yeah. That's funny. My critique is that I feel like there could be more coconut in this,
1: <laughs> which makes sense. Like it cut me loose. You're not making this beer for me.
0: And and I actually have a comparison. My and of course, this is everyone who hears this and knows me because you've actually been with us the longest, you know that my favorite Dragon's Milk Stout from New Holland, they actually brewed a temporary coconut stout for just like two shakes of a lamb's tail. And I had that and the coconut was so strong and it was so delicious and I loved it so much that though this beer, is, is excellent, and I like it, and it's tasty. It just makes me yearn for the stronger coconut taste of the New Holland's Dragon Milk Stout Coconut. But uh, I can't get the New Holland's Dragon Milk Stout Coconut as far as I can tell, that's done forever. So thank you, Transport Brewery, for filling the gap.
1: Yeah, it's a fine, As far especially the density of it. It totally drinks the way it looks, which is all great. I don't even dislike coconut. And it's super smooth. Super smooth.
0: And it doesn't have any harsh flavor. The beginning flavor, the middle, the finish, everything is super smooth in this. This would
1: sing you a lullaby is what this would do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So it's a right fine beer. I'm going to drink something else.
0: Lullaby. That is a great description of this beer.
1: Thanks for tuning in. We love having you join us every month. Remember, this is better with all of you. So if you have a paper you think we ought to read or a topic you'd like us to go looking for, let us know. Uh, You can post on our website, twopintplc.com or reach out on social media. And we want to do the things that matter to all of you because this is better together. Uh, We'll see you next month as we pursue growth, discuss research,
0: and struggle well.